My first exposure to Moses, as I have told you in the past, is Charlton Heston. I grew up watching around Christmas time or around Easter time the Ten Commandments. And uh, Charlton Heston played Moses. And it was interesting, a few months back, Charlton Heston was in town and a friend of mine got uh, an opportunity for us to go to a luncheon with him. And you want to go to lunch with Charlton Heston? <laughs> sure, I'd love it. Moses, I mean, you wouldn't pass it up. And so, you know, it was just weird looking at him in this luncheon. I mean, it was, I kind of felt all of those childhood experiences and feelings came back. And I kind of looked at him. He probably thought I was a goofball, kind of with my mouth open. And at one point I was standing by him and I had a picture taken and I, I wanted to whisper to him, let my people go. <laughs> I came really close. I didn't do it, but I was very tempted. I thought, this is Moses here. Of course it wasn't. In the book that we are reading, Moses, the man of God, who goes up and receives the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, becomes God's teacher, mouthpiece, for the nation of Israel. God not only gave the children of Israel commandments to put on a stone tablet to be placed in the Ark of the Covenant, but He gave them a sacrificial system and instructions for a priesthood and all the sacrifices so that they could approach God. Now, we have covered seven chapters already in two weeks. You know, that's really good uh, for this place. Uh, we often take uh, weeks to go through a chapter, but we've done more of an overview. We have seen so far that the theme of this book is worship and that worship involves sacrifice. And there are five sacrifices given at the beginning of Leviticus. Ways to approach God, a means to worship God. Because after all, the goal is to enter into an intimate experience with the living God, to worship Him for who He is. And let's face it, there are times when our own worship involves a sacrifice. There are times when we don't feel like worshiping. We don't feel like coming to church. We have a flesh, a flesh nature, that whispers to us that has certain sentiments and pulls and appetites. Don't go to church tonight. There's a great movie at 7.30. And church would spoil it. And we think, yeah, you know, I am kind of tired. Instead of videotaping it and going to church, I'm just going to hang loose. Feed my flesh. And your flesh goes, yes, feed me, feed me. And, and you know what that battle is like all of the time. The battle between the flesh and the spirit. And there are times even when we come to church and, and we don't feel like expressing our love. We don't feel like singing. We don't feel like getting in the song. Hey, it's been a bad week. I don't want to be a hypocrite. Yet it tells us in the book of Hebrews, let us continually, Hebrews chapter 13, offer up to God a sacrifice of praise. And we must ask ourselves, what is the purpose of gathering? What is the reason that we sing? Well, the purpose, the focus should be on God. We're doing it for Him. We're not doing it for us. We shouldn't be doing it for us. Worship is our response for who God is. Not for what He does, but for who He is. Now, granted, when we worship and we're drawn into that intimacy, that fellowship with God, there are certain things we feel. We usually, as we obey God and sacrifice worship, 
We feel close to Him. We feel a joy, a sense of satisfaction, a release. But that's the result, not the reason for worship. That's the result of doing it. Our focus is upon Him. What can I give to God? Not what is God going to give to me? This better be a good worship service, God. I better feel good when I leave this place. Then we have cheapened worship if we have come for that reason. It's something that we're doing merely for ourselves to feel good. In Romans chapter 12, after writing all about what God has done for us, Paul effectively says, now, it's your turn. It's your turn. I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, in view of all that God has done in showing His mercy to you that I've just described in 11 chapters, in view of all that, I beseech you, present yourselves to God, your bodies to God as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to Him, which is your reasonable service. It's your turn. God has done all this. Now present yourself to God as a sacrifice. A living sacrifice. Now that's different. In the Old Testament, we're reading about dead sacrifices. You lay your hands on the animal, kill it, and offer it. But we're to live for God. We're to live for Him. And I think a living sacrifice is a lot trickier and harder than a dead one. Living sacrifices have the tendency to want to squirm off the altar. Dead ones stay there. And so, Lord, I give you my life. It's a living sacrifice. But how will you feel tomorrow morning? When you're faced in a certain situation, you might say, oh, let me get off the altar just Monday through Friday. I'll be back Sunday. We want to squirm off. But we're to stay there. Our life is to be totally consumed for God, in other words. When we gather together in corporate worship, that is simply a testimony of a lifestyle. Our songs simply reflect the relationship we have with God. If your relationship with God is one of worship all week long, then when you gather in a place like this, your corporate worship, man, it will soar. It'll be awesome. If your worship during the week is dead and dry and stale with God, your worship here will be dead and dry and stale. It's simply a reflection of a lifestyle of worship and consecration. And speaking of consecration, chapters 8, 9, and 10 have a theme that worship involves service to God. We consecrate ourselves to God that we might serve Him. And so we try to take it as much as we can tonight as a chunk. The focus of chapters 8, 9, and 10 are not on the sacrifice as much as they are on the ones who will offer the sacrifice. In this case, the priests, the sons of Aaron and the tribe of Levi. You should probably know, well, let me put it this way. I personally believe that God's primary intention for the nation of Israel was never to establish a priesthood originally. That God originally intended each of the Israelites to be priests, where they didn't need a mediator as such. For in Exodus 19, God says, I want to make you a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Tell the children of Israel that. But then there was the problem of the golden calf, where they fell into idolatry and sin stained the nation. They were found unworthy, untrustworthy. And so out of all of the nation, only one family was chosen, one tribe and then one family, Aaron and his sons, and they became mediators with sacrifices for the entire nation. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, verse 1, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments, 
the anointing oil, a bull as the sin offering, two rams, and a basket of unleavened bread, and gather all the congregation together at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So Moses did as the Lord commanded him. And the assembly was gathered together at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And Moses said to the congregation, This is what the Lord commanded to be done. Then Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. And he put the tunic on them, girded him with a sash, clothed him with the robe, put the ephod on him, and girded him with the intricately woven band of the ephod, and with it tied the ephod on him. Then he put the breastplate on him, and the urim and the thummim in the breastplate. And he put the turban on his head, and also on the turban on its front, he put the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and sanctified them. He sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times, anointed the altar and all of its utensils and the laver and its base to sanctify them. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to sanctify him. Then Moses brought Aaron's sons and put tunics on them, girded them with sashes, and put hats on them as the Lord had commanded Moses. Now, this section, you could look at it as an ordination service. In many churches, they have ordination services. It's done publicly. The candidate is brought up. He is asked certain doctrinal questions. He has proven that he has fulfilled the study requirements, and they confer upon him a certificate of ordination. Now, after the preliminaries, it's time for these guys to get ordained. And it involves four things for the priests. First of all, cleansing. Second of all, clothing. The garments are mentioned that you remember back in Exodus when we studied that. Thirdly, consecrating, that is anointing them with oil. And fourthly, we'd call it contributing, if you wanted to keep it all alliterative with seeds or making a sacrifice. First of all, they had to be cleansed. An animal was brought as a sin offering for the priests. It wasn't just for the people. The priests themselves were not perfect, and they had to be cleansed before they could offer one up for the people. So it is in the ministry. A person needs to be cleansed of his sins. What's the first prerequisite for serving the Lord, whether as a clergyman or as a lay minister? It's to be a Christian. You say, okay, well, this is very rudimentary. This is very fundamental. I know this. You'd be surprised how many people don't. There are people all over the landscape in liberal churches, liberal pulpits, who don't believe in the scriptures, who don't believe in the deity of Christ, who don't believe in the Trinity. They call themselves ministers. They bring in a little bit of this and a little bit of a new age and a little bit of that, and it's like a smorgasbord. It's take your pick. They themselves are not cleansed. Thus, they have no authority to point the way to forgiveness and cleansing for anyone else. And there's a lot of them. How do I know this? Well, one Christmas, we gave an altar call. In fact, it was the year that, I think it was seven years ago, when Christmas fell upon a Sunday like it does this year. I gave an altar call. One of the men that came forward, I had a chance to speak with afterwards. He said, I have been an elder in my church on the pastoral board for many, many years. And I've got to say, I really responded to the gospel for the first time this morning. I haven't been saved all these years. 
Now, on one sense, I rejoice on one hand. Gosh, I'm glad he came to the Lord. On the other side, I think, how sad that there are churches, many, with people who don't even know Christ. It's a profession. It's a job. It's something to do. Oh, they get paid for it. Great day. I'll go into the ministry. First of all, there must be this cleansing from their own sins. Secondly, clothing. They were to put the tunic and the breastplate and so forth on. They had to wear certain clothes. Uh, do you remember the description of the clothes back in Exodus? The clothing that they wore was fine linen. It wasn't wool. It wasn't sackcloth. And I like that. You know, there's, I think, a very important lesson in that. God wants us to serve him with inspiration rather than perspiration. Now, they could have made clothes that were really tough. God could have said, put on sackcloth, make sure it itches, and you sweat, and that it's hard to serve me. No, he said, put on fine linen. I want these guys comfortable. I want them serving me out of the joy and gladness of their heart. I don't want to necessarily make it difficult for them so they view me as something that's, oh, it's horrible, I have to serve God, get those stupid clothes on again. Had it be done, it was something out of inspiration rather than perspiration. So many people portray serving God as perspiration. You've got to do this, and you've got to do that. No, you do it as God prompts your heart. True service is, Lord, yeah, it might even be difficult. I'm willing to do it because I love you. I want to do it. My heart, my love for you constrains me. Now today, uh, well, I, I really shouldn't say today there are no clergy... There's not clergy clothes, because there are. There are many people who distinguish themselves with uh, a collar or a robe or some piece of equipment that would demonstrate that they're part of the clergy. That's fine. I personally, well, as you can obviously see, don't believe in clergy wear. Though I have been uh, asked by several people, well, hey, why don't you wear a robe? Now, could you see me in a robe? Actually, that would be ridiculous looking. But there was a guy in town one time that really felt that, you know, poor Skip, he probably uh, would love to have a robe, but he just can't afford one or, or his church wouldn't get him one, so I'll offer him a robe. And he called me up and said, I'd like to give you a robe. And I, you know, had to gracefully say, I almost was bursting laughing, but I tried to contain myself, well, thank you so much for the offer, but uh, I don't think I'll be wearing one, thanks. Even Jesus spoke about those in the New Testament, the Pharisees, who loved to parade with their long robes. It drew attention to them. Oh, not only did it distinguish them as being in the clergy, but they used it to draw attention to themselves. And I love it when people don't know I'm a minister. I love sitting on an airplane, striking up a conversation. I take out my laptop, I'm working on a message. They think, oh, this is some business guy. And they'll just feel free to tell me about anything. They'll say, well, what do you do? And when I tell them, I preach the gospel, I'm a minister, all of a sudden, they, they change. <gasps> oh, I'm so sorry, I just said this. But that's who they really are, and I want them to be who they really are. I don't want them to put on a mask. Jesus didn't walk up to the woman of Samaria, two feet above the ground, just sort of floating, with a little halo glowing. She just thought he was a Jew from Jerusalem. She had total freedom to be who she was. And Jesus revealed himself to her. And then thirdly, there was this anointing. 
They were not only called, they were anointed, sprinkled with this oil and the blood, and they were anointed. Now, let me just draw an analogy to those of us. All of us are called, all of us for whatever God has called us for, we have received an anointing, an unction from the Spirit of God. Every one of you tonight has a gift, or two or three, or a cluster. You've got gifts that God has given to you, that God wants to use in your life and through your life to contribute to the body of Christ. We need you. We need your involvement. We need your ministry. And if I can inspire some of you to be used by God, I will work, praise the Lord that I have done exactly what God called me to do. I want to I see you be used by God. You can be used by God. Now, there has to be a calling. I can't call you into it. God must do it. When it comes to the ministry, when it comes to being a clergyman or a preacher, and I hate a lot of those terms, but it really does take a calling of God. There are a lot of people who say, I want to be in the ministry. I want to be a preacher of the gospel. Well, that, it takes a gift and a calling of God. You just don't presume to go into it. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon wrote. No man may intrude into the sheepfold as an under-shepherd. He must have an eye to the chief shepherd and wait his beck and command. Before a man ever stands forth as God's ambassador, he must wait for the call from above. If he does not do so, but rushes into the sacred office, the Lord will say of him and others like him, I did not send them, neither commanded them. Therefore they shall not profit this people at all, saith the Lord. That's Jeremiah 23. That hundreds have missed their way and stumbled against a pulpit is sorrowfully evident from the fruitless ministries and decaying churches which surround us. It is a fearful calamity for a man to miss his calling and to the church upon who he imposes himself. His mistake involves an affliction of the most grievous kind. It would be a curious and painful subject for reflection. The frequency with which men in the possession of reason mistake the end of their existence and aim at objects which they never were intended to pursue. Now, from time to time, we in this fellowship will present certain ones with an ordination certificate. Now, does that mean when they receive that piece of paper that, voila, there's a transformation that takes place? All of a sudden they're ordained? No, if the truth be known, we can't ordain anyone. We can only ratify that God has ordained them. We see the fruit. We see the evidence. We see the effect of their life and their ministry. The government has allowed us to confer rights of ordination upon people. And we use that, but only when we see God raising up an individual obviously gifting that person, and we see the fruit of the ministry, then who are we to say God has it? And by the way, if God has, who cares about the piece of paper? Why pursue the paper? I want that paper. I want that plaque in my office. Why? You've got to have the goods that go along with it. And if you've got the goods, who cares about man's ratification? Now, it does stand to reason if you have the goods... Men will see it. The ratification, don't worry about it. Don't seek it, but it will come. People will see your ministry. They will be affected by it. But you don't have to seek it. And so many do pursue that. They want, to, they want that degree. They want to be called doctor, reverend. Oh, it sounds so good. Call, say it again. And then fourthly, there is sacrificing. Sacrificing. 
You offer a sacrifice, and that's not only the animal sacrifice. Think of it. Aaron, his sons, all these Levites had to be totally committed to this thing. It took their whole life. And let me just say, if you want to go into the full-time ministry, it's going to take a sacrifice. It's going to take your time. It's going to take all of you. If you want to be an expositor of the Word of God, it's going to consume your week. You'll find yourself like writing a master's thesis all week long. You're studying, you're researching, you're feeding yourself. And then as you come to this Bible study during the week or the Sunday morning, it's the outflow of that study. 1991, there was a survey of pastors conducted by Fuller Seminary. And the results were absolutely astonishing. At least I think so. 80% of the people that were polled believed that the pastoral ministry has affected their families negatively. 33% say being in the ministry is an outright hazard to their family. 75% of the people that were polled report a significant stress-related crisis at least once in their ministry. 50% feel unable to meet the needs of the task. 90% feel they were inadequately trained to cope with ministry demands. 40% report a serious conflict with a parishioner at least once a month. 37% confess to having been involved in inappropriate sexual behavior with someone in their church. And 70% said they don't have anyone they consider a close friend. As you can see, it has taken a toll on many people. And the statistics show that many people are dropping out of the ministry than are going into it. For a lot of reasons. Unrealistic expectations. Perhaps they're not called of God. There could be a number of reasons. But it's going to take a sacrifice. It'll take a sacrifice of your time. Most people get weekends off. We here do weddings on Saturdays. Counseling during the week. Then there's Sunday services and so forth. No, don't listen. We're not complaining. We love it. We wouldn't want to do anything else. I'm having a blast. I'm having more fun than I ever thought I could have. In fact, sometimes I pinch myself saying, you know, is it okay, God, that I have this much fun? I mean, this is great. That it does take a sacrifice. And you're in a fishbowl. You know, people are always looking, evaluating, seeing, and so forth. The sacrifices are described in verses 14 through 21. He brought the bull for the sin offering. Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull for the sin offering. And Moses killed it. He took the blood. He put some of it on the horns of the altar all around with his finger, purified the altar, poured the blood at the base of the altar, sanctified it to make atonement for it. Then he took all the fat that was on the entrails, the fatty lobe attached to the liver, the two kidneys, with their fat, and Moses burned them on the altar. You know, being in the ministry in those days, you had to sort of be a butcher slash anatomist. You were always filled with blood and covered the area, your hands, and, and, and uh, you, you brought out the implements, and what a task. Then came the consecration ceremony itself, the ordination ceremony. In verse 22, he brought the second ram, the ram of consecration, and Aaron and his sons laid their head hands on the head of the ram. Verse 23, Moses killed it. He took some of its blood and put it on the tip of Aaron's right ear, the thumb of his right hand, and the big toe of his right foot. And he brought Aaron's sons 
And Moses put some of the blood on the tips of their right ears, the thumbs of their right hands, on the big toes of their right feet. And Moses sprinkled the blood all around the altar. No doubt this is symbolic of consecrating your, your faculties to God. You put blood on your ear. Lord, my ear is devoted to listening to your voice. I'm your servant. Speak, Lord, your servant hears. On my right hand, my thumb, these hands are consecrated for your service. My right toe, indicating that my walk will be before you. I order my behavior and my life before you. It's very much akin to what we just mentioned in Romans chapter 12. Present your bodies to God as living sacrifices. Not only will they make sacrifices, they themselves, all of their faculties now are consecrated to God. Now I should say that if you ever want direction from God, you must first be consecrated to God and His will. How many times we pray, Lord, I just want to do your will, <clears throat> but uh, tell me what it is first. No, you can't have that reservation. You must say, whatever, wherever. Lord, if you say jump, I won't say why. I'll say how high. No reservation. Sometimes we want to know the will of God before we say, okay, I'll do it. I remember very well, living in Huntington Beach, California. And I thought of all the different places in America that I could go and serve the Lord. And, you know, Hawaii was first on the list. Maui was actually right there. It's a great place. Love the area. It's always green. It's always summer. The waves are just red hot. Hey, Lord, listen, there's unbelievers, a lot of them that come there. And I had this whole little ministry scheme in my mind. Lord, I'll serve you anywhere, as long as it's Maui. Then I remember getting a call from Aspen, Colorado. There was a group of 30, 35 people who wanted a pastor. I said, yeah, this is it. This is it. Then my friend said, I'm moving to Albuquerque. Now, let me just say that I am not disappointed at all in the choice, because it was God's choice. You know, it doesn't matter where you are as long as you're in the center of God's will. You can be in Maui. You can be in Aspen, Colorado, snowboarding down the slopes. You can be in the Bahamas. If you're not in God's will, you will be miserable. And so when I heard about Abba, hey, Lord, if that's where you want me, great. I'd love to go. Okay, I, I admit, when I saw it the first time, it was in March, and it was snowing, and the wind was blowing with the sand, and I just thought, ah, uh, Let's have a little talk here, God. I... But I'm just so grateful at what God has done. And so we present ourselves to God as living sacrifices. By the way, the Greek construction of the language means once for all. Here it is. Once for all. I'm yours. You bought me with a price by the blood of your Son. Everything that I have and am belongs to you. Romans chapter 6, verse 13. You might want to write down or remember... Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as one risen from the dead and your members, that is the parts of your body, like the ear, like the hand, like the toe, instruments of God to righteousness. Lord, everything that I have is consecrated to you, my feet, my hands.
for your service and for your will. You think about it. Your body can be a base of operations for God to do as well. Command central. The Holy Spirit dictates the will of God to your heart. You receive it. You're the base of operations. Wherever you're at, at work, in your neighborhood, to do the will of God. Think of the meaning that every day will take if you get up and say, what is your will today? And my pursuit, though I go to work, though I have to drive to the store, though I've got to take care of the kids, my pursuit is, what will be your will for my life and, and what will the unfolding of your will mean today? That can be exciting. You say, yeah, but a lot of it can be the same. Yeah, but there'll be enough variation, believe me, where God will surprise you. As you say, Lord, my body belongs to you. Now, the scripture is filled with examples of God using very simple people and very simple things. A sling is no big deal. But in the hands of David, whose hands he consecrated to God, they became a weapon to destroy God's enemies. Everybody has a mouth, but the mouths of the prophet consecrated to God became voices of God to the people. Paul's feet ran all over Asia Minor and brought the gospel. How happy, it says in Isaiah, are the feet of them that bring good news. You want happy feet? It's not Dr. Scholl. It's preaching the gospel and letting your body parts, your instruments, be members of righteousness unto God. So in verses 25 through 29, they take the second ram, the fat of the ram, the right thigh. They put a wafer on it. They consecrate it to God as a wave offering before the Lord. In verse 30, they put the anointing oil and the blood, sprinkle it upon Aaron, his sons, their garments. Then they eat the rest of it. That's their portion, the portion of the priest. They do this for seven days uh, in the court of the tabernacle. That's mentioned in verses 31 through 36. So your life is to be God's instrument. You know, somebody went to a violinist in Carnegie Hall in New York and asked what the secret of their success was, of why they played so well. The violinist said, the secret to my success, I call it planned neglect. I have planned to neglect everything except my goals. I have planned to neglect everything that doesn't focus upon my true goal. My true goal is to be the best violinist. And so think, what are your goals? And then as you evaluate your life based upon your goals in Christ, decisions in the will of God become much easier. Paul the Apostle said, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are expedient. The word expedient means further me along my God-given goals. To glorify God, to edify the body of Christ. I know that I have this gift. I know that I have this talent that God has given me. Now I'm going to make decisions based upon what God has given me and called me to do. Plan neglect. I like that. Leviticus chapter 9, the priests begin their ministry. After seven days of consecration, they're ready. They first take an animal, kill it, drain its blood, it becomes a sin offering for themselves, and then they're ready to offer the sacrifice for the people. Again, demonstrating that the only approach to God is through the shedding of blood. It came to pass on the eighth day that Moses called Aaron and his sons, the elders of Israel. Now, the eighth day, since there's only seven days in a week, is also the first day. So you're starting all over again. They've been out there seven days. Now, the eighth day of their being there but you might see it as a time of a, a, a new beginning for them. 
He said to Aaron, Take for yourself a young bull as a sin offering, a ram as a burnt offering without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. To the children of Israel you shall speak, saying, Take a kid of the goats as a sin offering, and a calf, and a lamb, both of the first year without blemish, as a burnt offering. Also a bull and a ram as peace offerings to sacrifice before the Lord, and a grain offering mixed with oil, for today the Lord will appear to you. And so they brought what Moses commanded before the tabernacle of meeting, and all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. So on the first day they offer a sin offering, a burnt offering, a meal offering, and a peace offering. I mean, they're really cranking. They're going through these offerings pretty quick. The priest begins his ministry. This is the day that the priesthood takes off in Israel. Now, what is the function of a priest? The function of a priest is the opposite of the function of a prophet. A priest represented the people to God. A prophet, which will be introduced to his ministry in subsequent chapters, a prophet represents God to the people. That's very, very different. A priest will come with the children of Israel upon his heart, the breastplate, the names of the sons of Israel, and on their behalf be a representative of the people to God. The prophet is God's representative of the people. But the priests offer the sacrifices functioning uh, for the people before God. Now, Jesus Christ is both prophet and priest and king. Now, let me just go back and fill in a couple little gaps. Way, way back, the priesthood was developing. The head of the home was the priest of the home. The patriarchs were priests of their own homes. In fact, way back in, in ancient times, even in non-Israelite times, um, a king and a priest were often the same person as he functioned as king and a priest over a region, not only for his family, but for his whole tribe. Melchizedek was the king of Salem. He was the priest of the Most High God. And that was often a designation for people. They were kings and priests together. Then one family was selected. Aaron and one tribe in the nation of Israel. And so it developed. Here's a whole bunch of people, a whole tribe of people who work in the tabernacle, later on work in the temple. Their whole function is to represent you before God. Jesus Christ fulfills the priesthood and the role of the Old Testament prophet. He represents you to God. In fact, he's doing that right now. He's at the right hand of the throne of God, praying for you, interceding for you. Then he represented God to man as the prophet. The Word of God made flesh. Jesus Christ fulfills them both. Also, in the New Testament, you are a priest. Did you know that? You're a priest. You say, yeah, but I'm a female. You're still a priest. We're a nation of priests. Growing up in the church I did, my parents always wanted me to be a priest. First of all, they wanted my older brother to be one. He made it to seminary. He wore the collar and the black robe. But he didn't get ordained as a priest. He wanted to get married. So he bailed. And uh, my second brother was next on the list, so my parents had high hopes. Surely Rick will be the priest in our family. Every good Catholic family, after all, should have a, a priest as a relative, and so Rick will be it. Rick went to the seminary, wore the collar, wore the robe. I've got pictures. It looks really impressive. 
He got the education, but he didn't get ordained. He bought a chopped Triumph 650 with extended forks and just sort of ran around the country, grew his hair long, and wigged out. <laughs> Bob was next on the list. He wanted to go to law school. He didn't become a priest, so there's always hope for Skip. He'll be the one. Now, my life has taken a different twist than what they anticipated. But I always like to tell my mom, I am a priest. What do you mean? I am. The Bible calls every believer a priest. Peter says, you are a holy people, a chosen generation, a priesthood to God. You're a priest. You don't need any human representative to represent you before God. In fact, it's an affront to the cross to have anybody else as a person represent you as a mediator. The priesthood has been done away with because the New Testament speaks of the priesthood of all believers. Isn't that exciting? You don't have to go through anyone. Just go directly to God. But I'm unworthy. Well, that's what the cross was all about. Jesus took your payment. And to say that I'm going to use now intermediaries of saints or... Mary or my priest to get to God because I'm not worthy is a person who doesn't understand the sacrifice of the cross. That's all. Well-meaning, wonderful people, but unaware of the sacrifice and all that it meant for their sins. And when you discover that, that not only are you a priest, but you're a saint. Now, you really want to wig people out Tell them that you're a saint. What do you think, you are a saint? Yes, I do. <laughs> You'll often hear people sort of deride that concept. You know, they say, well, I'm not perfect, I'm no saint. Well, if you're a Christian, you are a saint. Every time Paul wrote letters, he addressed the saints who are at Rome. Now, he wasn't talking about those who had died because they weren't at Rome, they were in heaven. The saints at Rome. And he mentioned some of them by name. They were living when he wrote that letter. A saint isn't someone who's dead, that you decided to canonize hundreds of years after their death. It's someone who believes in Jesus Christ. The Greek word is hagias. It means set apart by God because of God. You're a saint. And so if you really wanted a title for a Christian, call him a saint. Saint Skip. It has a ring to it. You've got to admit that. St. George, with the strange things on his head. We are a peculiar people, the Bible says. And in verse 6, Moses said, This is the thing which the Lord commanded you to do, and the glory of the Lord will appear to you. And they do what God commanded. And in verse 22, Aaron lifted his hand toward the people, blessed them, and came down from offering the sin offering, came down. He, he was on an elevated platform. Remember the dimensions of that huge altar out front, six feet by six feet, square, brass altar. And it was raised on a platform so that even outside the tabernacle you were able to see what was going on. And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of meeting and came out and blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came down from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. And all the people saw it. They shouted. 
and they fell on their faces. Now, please, don't confuse this with some of the shenanigans that goes on of people in certain meetings falling backwards and being caught by certain people. They didn't fall backwards. They fell on their faces, meaning they responded with great awe. They worshiped, and it says they shouted. I mean, can you imagine the scene as God from heaven brings fire down and consumes that sacrifice? That, that, I'd, fall, I'd shout. I'd fall on my face. Woe is me. Now, when Aaron finished, it says he raised up his hands and he blessed the people. What did he say? Well, as we skip ahead to the book of Numbers, it fills us in on this time period and what God told the high priest and Aaron to say to the people. He said, Numbers chapter 6, verse 24, actually beginning in verse 22, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his son saying, this is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Wouldn't that be a great thing to hear? What a great blessing. The Lord bless you, keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you, be gracious unto you, give you peace. And so he blessed the people. And so they shall put my name on the children of Israel and I will bless them. That's Numbers chapter 6. It's interesting, Jesus did the same thing, didn't he, when he was ascending up into heaven? The scripture says, and he looked at his disciples, raised his hands up, and blessed them. Maybe as he was ascending into heaven, he could have said this high priest blessing, the Lord bless you and keep you. Of course, that symbolism would be very prominent to them, the great high priest going to represent them now before the Father. Verse 23 says, The glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came down from before the Lord, consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. All the people saw it. They shouted and fell on their faces. The consuming of the sacrifice meant something. It meant that God was pleased with their sacrifice after they obeyed. They'd done it God's way. They have done it by the book, so to speak. So God accepts their sacrifice by consuming it from heaven. It was assigned to them. This is pleasing to God. Now in the New Testament, Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin because they believe not on me. Of righteousness because I go to the Father. When Jesus ascended up into heaven to the right hand of the throne of God, it was a message. It was saying, this is the righteousness that God accepts. God will not accept the righteousness, the self-righteousness of man. The righteousness that God accepts is Jesus Christ. He lived a perfect life. He died an atoning death. Now he's received, received up into heaven of righteousness because I go to the Father and you see me no more. Jesus' ascension into heaven, much like this, was symbolic that God accepts that kind of righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. So the sacrifice was accepted. Now we're in chapter 10. Look at that. We have 10 minutes left, and we've already covered two chapters. You know, that's pretty good. Now we come to a very sad chapter in the Bible. After the flush of victory, the first day has been great. The sacrifices have been offered. The priests are obedient. The fly in the ointment appears. Their names, Nadab and Abihu. A little bit of rebellion. What I mean by that is they decided to be a little presumptuous. Rather than seeking the mind of God and how God wanted things done, 
it seems they just kind of took things upon themselves. And there's a real lesson for us in our service and in our worship. That we don't do things because, well, we feel it's a good way to do it. But that we seek the mind of God. And we do things God's way. And in order to do that, you need to have something called the fear of the Lord. Something that I think is very absent today in the world, but even in the church. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What does the fear of the Lord mean? It means, does that mean you stand like Toto and Dorothy and those people in the Wizard of Oz shaking and because you're so afraid that you'll... No, it means a holy, healthy reverence and respect for God. You love Him. You don't want to offend Him. There's a lot of people who are unashamed to commit certain sins. Oh, we're just living together. Oh, we still come to church. Boy, there's no fear of God in that person. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord will keep a person from many a sin. Nadab and Abihu, verse 1, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer, put fire in it, put incense on it, offered profane, or as the King Jimmy says, strange fire, before the Lord, which had not, he had not commanded them. Now, I, I just want to say as we get into this story, how much I appreciate the Bible's honesty. Whenever it talks about its heroes, it paints an honest picture, which I think is one of the proofs that it's inspired by God. Because a lot of biographers seek to taint the characters a little bit, kind of making them more grandiose than they are, giving them certain features almost superhuman when in reality there's a lot of flaws, but the biographer, the autobiographer especially, would want to hide them. God mentions Abraham, however, as one who lapsed in faith, though he's the example of faith in the New Testament. Isaac, a deceiver. David, an adulterer. Moses, a complainer. And one who was resistant even to the call of God. So we have God's heroes. They're mentioned in the Bible, but on all honesty, their characters are given. So they brought this profane or strange fire. Look what happens, verse 2. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them. Now this did not mean that God was pleased with them like he was pleased with the sacrifice. It means God didn't want them around. And so God smoked them, literally. Crispy crittered them. And they died before the Lord and everybody else. And Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, so I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. And Moses called Mishael and Elzaphon, the sons of Uziel, the son of Aaron, and said to them, Come near, carry your burden, oh, excuse me, carry your brethren from before the sanctuary out of the camp. So they went near and carried them by their tunics out of the camp, as Moses had said. Now, what's going on? What is this strange fire or profane fire? The Hebrews call this unconsecrated fire. We can only conjecture this is probably what happened. In chapter 16, which we're not at yet, later on God will give the commandment. The way you burn incense in your censer is you go out to the courtyard, to that altar of sacrifice. There's to be a fire, we read last week, that is always burning on it. It never goes out. Take coals from off the burnt 
offering altar, the sacrifice altar, and you walk into the veil, you put ground incense upon those coals on the incense altar, and it will fill the place. That's where you get your fire, because that's the fire that God ignited. You don't light your own fire. You don't pull out a Bic lighter and then walk in. And perhaps they just kindled an ordinary fire. You say, well, listen, it's not their fault. God hadn't given it to them in chapter 16. The point is this. They presumed. They didn't ask. They were priests. They were representing the people. Instead of inquiring and finding out, okay, God, what's the next step? They presumed. Now, there's another key to this. I think they were intoxicated. I'll tell you why in just a minute. Before we do, however, there's a real danger in offering strange fire to the Lord. That is, doing something out of good intention without revelation. You've heard the old saying that the way to hell is paved by good intentions. Many people have good intentions. Many people make up their own religion. Well, I sort of picture God as, and I think God is pleased with, and I think I'll do this. Hey, have you ever talked to God about this? Ever read what God said? David tried this. He decided to go to the house of Abinadab and take that Ark of the Covenant that's been sitting over there for so long and put it on a cart and carry it up. They put it on a cart, they start walking. As the cart gets over the threshing floor of Nacon, it starts to tip a little bit. One of the guys who's standing by helping the thing go is named Uziel. Excuse me, Uzzah. Uziel, we just mentioned he's one of the sons of Aaron. Uzzah. And he, with a good intention, steadies the cart. He didn't want the Ark of the Covenant to fall down, hit the ground. After all, it's God's holy ark. So he steadies it. God strikes him dead. David gets really angry. I had good intentions. But God said, David, that's not the way I told you to carry it. When you carry the Ark of the Covenant, you have the Levites take it and you carry it on poles, not on a cart. I'm holy. You're representing God. And when you represent God and you serve me, you do it my way, not the way you feel like. You don't presume. He says in verse 3, by those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy, and before all the people, I must be glorified. You might look at it from the perspective of those in the ministry. If you're going to be in the ministry, if you're going to serve God, you just don't give God any old thing. You just don't slap, oh, is there a sacrifice? Oh, there's a great little sacrifice. Slap it up on the altar. You make sure it's what God wants. And instead of waiting on God, instead of being diligent to hear the voice of God, maybe the easiest thing is just to get the Bic lighter, to get the ordinary fire, and bring it before God. Now, I really want to press a point home for those who are feeling called to the ministry. We have people in uh, this fellowship who want to go out and start churches and pastor churches or be in the ministry. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said. If you plan to be lazy, there's plenty of avocations in which you will not be wanted. But above all, you are not wanted in the Christian ministry. The man who finds the ministry an easy life will also find that it brings a hard death. Nadab and Abihu found that out. The profane fire, as many believe, was the path of least resistance. And they just thought, eh, it's good enough, and they brought it before God. Now, God was very overt in demonstrating his displeasure. 
Does God still do this today? Well, let me tell you this. I don't think he does it quite the same way, and you can thank him for that. But there were times throughout history, at the beginning of this dispensation of the law, the covenant with Israel, God showed his displeasure here in the theocracy with Israel. Then with Uzzah, when the new monarchy under David developed. This is God's displeasure with people who presume. In the New Testament, book of Acts, there's Ananias and Sapphira, who pretended to sell their land, take the money, and give it to the church. They kept back part of it. Their sin isn't that they kept back part of it. They could keep all they wanted. Peter said that. Their sin was they were hypocrites. They told everybody, we've sold it, and we're going to give it all to the Lord's work. But they were lying. They kept back part of it, so they were playing the hypocrite. And Peter said, guess what? You're dead. This is paraphrased. And they fell down, and they carried them out. In the church of Corinth, Paul said that there were many among them who disdained the Lord's Supper, the love feast that they had. He said, because of that, many of them are sick and have died because you didn't treat communion, the Lord's Supper, with respect. So God does that from time to time. He is showing his character of holiness. He's demonstrating. It doesn't mean that Ananias and Sapphira or the Corinthians were doomed on their way to hell. It means that God took them out of the way to demonstrate that he's a holy God and that we can't presume. Now again, you can thank God he doesn't do that. If God struck people dead, then you'd have liberal churches, You'd have liberal pastors and all sorts of people who deny Christ, deny the deity of Christ, deny the Trinity, be dead all over the place. And in fundamental evangelical conservative churches, we probably have a lot of people too because of hypocrisy dying. Imagine if you were singing, I surrender all, but you really hadn't surrendered your whole life. There was still an area that you were holding on to. You really weren't obedient. And so you're there in a service. I surrender. What happened to him? Oh, I guess he didn't surrender all. I mean, we'd be having more funerals than anything else. We'd really thin out the ranks. It'd be a diminishing fellowship. Oh, we can thank God that he deals more graciously than that. Now, it's pretty rough, these guys. Imagine their own brother had died. And Moses, it sounds callous. You know, he's dead weight. Take your brother, take him out. You grew up with him. Or imagine Aaron, the dad, seeing his kids die. But he has to remain as the minister. I'm sure at this point he said, uh, I quit. Okay, get another family. This is too tough. This is too emotionally heart-rending. It was tough. Those in the ministry have a high level of accountability. James said, Be not many masters, you shall receive the greater condemnation or the stricter judgment. Now there's a story in the Old Testament actually of a couple of priests, sons of priests, the sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. Remember them? They operated in their ministry such that they caused the children of Israel to disdain the sacrifices of God. When it was their turn to take some of the portions of the sacrifice, instead of distinguishing the right thigh and the certain portion, they just put in their meat hook and grabbed the nicest portion and scarfed it in front of the people, causing the children of Israel to despise God and his sacrifices. God struck them dead, or God had them killed shortly thereafter. A stricter judgment. 
I'm concerned, you know, when we first moved here, we had some people in our church, and one of the reasons we decided to not take a formal offering, though we believe in offerings, and I don't mind churches that take formal offerings, it's perfectly fine and biblical. We just decided to go with these agape boxes. Because when we came here, it seemed that this being the crossroads of the country, when you think about it, I-25 and I-40, this is the crossroads of America. North and south, east and west. Everybody, their brother and sister came through here as evangelists or as ministry, and they all took huge offerings. And it seemed that the people in this community were just bled with people, in the name of God, taking offerings. There's 20 people tonight with a thousand on that, all that nonsense. And uh, there was somebody who came through town, had a great show, a preacher, an evangelist. I mean, he was just entertaining to watch. Put on quite a show. Then he took offerings with trash cans. He didn't pass the hat, he passed the trash can. And uh, he said, no, I expect these full tonight. couple from our fellowship, it was a very small fellowship, and decided, he said, you know, this is a, this is a rip-off. This is, he's not representing God. Let's go. They started to leave, and this evangelist said, hey, you wouldn't leave a restaurant without paying, would you? You get a meal, you're expected to pay for it. Now, they were gracious. They just walked out. I probably would have turned around and said something. Snake. And he pressed the issue and he said, now we're going to take this offering and we're going to buy two big semi-trucks. And here, and he introduced the truck drivers, are our Christian brothers, truck drivers. They, they're beautiful brothers in Christ. They, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And they're God's representatives. And they're going to drive the truck. And aren't we blessed that God has raised them up? And let's give them a big hand. It was quite a show. People were moved in their emotion almost to a frenzy. So they gave. Another guy who was in our fellowship who decided to stay through the whole thing decided to scope it out and he went to the back after this whole meeting where these two blessed Christian truck driver brothers were as they were smoking and getting drunk. They were just having slamming one beer after another. They were just laughing at the night, just saying, oh, we got him tonight. And it was just a big, at least to the truck driver, a big sham. They didn't know the Lord. They were in it just for the money. So, you're called into the ministry, be careful. Oh, you might get away with certain things, but you have a judge that you will stand before like everybody else, but you will receive a stricter judgment for the doctrine that you preach because it's eternal stuff and the way you conduct the business, especially when you presume on offerings. Hey, if God lays it on your heart, great. If he doesn't, great. And that's why I always want to be, I want to feed you. I want to feed you the truth of the Word of God. If God motivates you to give to His work, fine. If He doesn't, hey, fine. It's between you and Him. Those were the instructions to the priest. Oh, we covered the first few verses and we're out of time. Uh, but Moses did say to Aaron in verse 6, and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, Do not uncover your heads or tear your clothes lest you die, and wrath come upon all the people. But let your brethren, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning which the Lord has kindled, you shall go out from the door 
You shall not go out from the door of the tabernacle of meeting lest you die, for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of the Lord. Now, the remaining two sons were not allowed to publicly mourn. Why? Because the anointing oil was upon them. They were the mediators for Israel. If they break rank, they step out of office, the children of Israel have no mediator for their sins, and wrath would come upon them. It was God's loving gesture to the nation of Israel. Secondly, if they demonstrated mourning when God was judging them, they could incite the whole nation to mourn and even be recalcitrant against God, be hardened against God, and disdain the Lord for judging them and turn the nation against them. Let's quickly finish this up. The Lord spoke to Aaron saying, Do not drink wine or intoxicating drink. You or your sons with you when you go into the tabernacle of meeting lest you die. So it could be that the profane fire was that they kindled the fire. They were intoxicated as they approached the worship of God. And God wanted His people lucid, sober-minded, so they could judge and make good evaluations and not be tainted or be... Um, stimulated in, in any other way. That you may distinguish between the holy and the unholy, the clean and the unclean, that you may teach the children of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them by the hand of Moses. You could say that they were under the influence, perhaps, while they were in their ministry. They were PWI, preaching under the influence, or with the influence. You know, in the Bible, there's a distinction, have you noticed it, between being filled with the Holy Spirit and drunk with wine? Galatians, be not, filled, be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to yourselves in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, making melody in your hearts to the Lord. In Luke chapter 1, speaking of John the Baptist, and he will not drink intoxicating drink, but he will be filled with the Spirit. And if you're in the ministry, again, you set a high example. Imagine if you went down to the bar. You looked in there, and there I was, slamming a brewski. Hey, I got the liberty, man. What a bad example that would be. What a stumbling block that would be. Now, God wants to fill you. God wants to give you a high. God wants your life to be so filled with joy and excitement. Not a false high. Not a false excitement, not a temporary one, a true, intimate relationship. Instead of being filled with wine, be filled with the Spirit. Now, as you read the rest of the chapter, Moses, the whole day, from verse 12 all the way down, the rest of that day is very careful to do everything by the book. In fact, he gets a little upset. This is what God commanded. Don't mess with it, Aaron. And his sons, this is what God commanded, do exactly what he said. And there was a couple of things that weren't quite right, and he got upset, and they explained it to him. Uh, they weren't eating the sacrifices in the appropriate place, but the idea is that you do what God wants you to do. Now let me close tonight by asking you two questions. Number one, who lights your fire? Who lights your fire? They brought profane fire. Maybe they were intoxicated, and they brought what they felt like. Do you have to try to psych yourself out to feel good when you worship? Or do you have to have some worship leader really work you into a frenzy to light your fire? Your therapist lights your fire? Does God truly light your fire? You come before God 
The altar of your heart is burning. God touches you, and you're inflamed to worship him. Secondly, are you exploring and expending the gifts that God has given to you? Are you depriving the body of Christ by not using what God has given to you? Oh, what do I have? That's unbelief. That's unbelief. God has given each one of you a gift, and God has a service for you. And I'll tell you what, your life will be so exciting, you'll be so outrageously joyful when you experience the thrill of being used by God. Well, how can I be used by God? What seminary? No, all you have to do is say, God, here's my body, a living sacrifice, use me. But I have a nine-to-five job. Are there unbelievers that work there? Wouldn't it be great if every one of them were Christians? Well, how could they be? You? Me? Oh, yeah. I remember working in a secular hospital, and not one person was a believer. But when I left there, not because I was any great evangelist there, but over a period of time, so many had given their lives to Christ, and we started Bible studies in the department and in the ER and in the lab and in physical therapy and respiratory therapy and in surgery, and uh, it just spread. Your life, wherever you're at, you can render service to God. 